Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder on Colin. As always, this episode will be open to anyone listening. Please feel free to join. I will respond to any political questions you all have. I accidentally put the wrong day on this, so I know people are going to probably start coming in in the next several minutes here. But while I'm waiting for people to join the queue, please feel free to go ahead and join. I'll just begin today talking about one of the most important things that's happening in the news this week, which is a NATO summit going on in Madrid, Spain. And we've seen that NATO member Turkey has announced that it will allow Finland and Sweden, Finland and Sweden to join NATO. And this is yet another example of how NATO is strictly not a defensive organization. It is an offensive organization because what was the response of the Secretary General of NATO, John Sturten, Jen Stoltenberg, when Turkey made this agreement, which we'll talk about in a second, with Sweden and Finland, the response of Stoltenberg was to say, Putin, expect more NATO on your borders. How can anyone call that defensive? I mean, it's ridiculous. It is clearly aimed at provoking Russia, at threatening Russia, boasting that NATO is continuing to expand right up onto Russia's borders. Now, I want to talk about this Turkey agreement that was made because there was speculation that Turkey could potentially block Sweden and Finland from joining the U.S.-led military cartel. But... Turkey always kind of plays this role where it claims to have a more independent foreign policy and tries to play different sides against each other. But at the end of the day, Turkey pretty much always ends up on the side of the U.S. That's why Turkey is a member of NATO. Turkey has the second largest military force in NATO after the United States. And when we talk about Turkey... Of course, we, we can talk about Russia type Erdogan, the president who really controls a lot of the country. But at the same time, the Turkish deep state really still has significant influence. And when we talk about the idea of a deep state, Turkey is the country where discussion of the deep state really started. And when we talk about the Turkish deep state, we're talking about NATO. Throughout the first Cold War, NATO was a very important Western ally against the Soviet Union. Turkey and Russia have very complex historical relations. So Turkey, Turkey's role as a member of NATO was often used as a way you know, th of threatening Russia today and the former Soviet Union. Let's not forget that when we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, it's called the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not called the Turkish Missile Crisis, which is part of the propaganda narrative, but Turkey had... U.S. nuclear weapons aimed at the Soviet Union. And Erdogan, compared to past Turkish leaders, is a little more independent. But once again, he still tends to end up on the side of the U.S. and Western imperialism. We see this very clearly in Syria, where Turkey continues to militarily occupy the northern part of Syria. Turkey played a key role in the CIA's war on Syria. Now, Erdogan does try to maintain what they call strategic ambiguity. 
He has been trying to improve relations with Russia. He's bought Russian military equipment, including the S-400 missile defense system. But once again, when he's pressured, and especially, you know, when the U.S. is threatening sanctions on Turkey, he always gives in. And this is yet another example. Turkey did sign an agreement with Sweden and Finland. In return, the Scandinavian countries said that they are going to extradite Kurdish activists who are allegedly linked to militant groups like the PKK, which also, I mean, for me, really shows how thin the Western so-called democracies commitments are to human rights and democracy and all of this. They'll, they'll say things, they'll criticize countries like Turkey, which is genuinely very authoritarian and has imprisoned a lot of journalists and dissidents. And then they'll say, well, we need to protect human rights and, you know, we need to give asylum to these, these Kurdish activists and protect them and blah, blah, blah. And then when it's politically convenient, they'll immediately use them as bargaining chips and throw them back to Erdogan to imprison in order to expand NATO right up under Russia's borders. So this is good for Turkey and it's bad for Russia and it's good for NATO and it's good for U.S. imperialism. So this is usually how these things go. And Today, which is June 29th, NATO already has released a statement about the Madrid summit, and it's just boilerplate propaganda. You read it over. They talk about this new strategic blueprint and all this, but it's all about containing Russia. It's all about expanding Western military cooperation under the leadership of the U.S. to expand imperialism and to threaten Russia. And I should say that Zelensky the Ukrainian puppet leader participated in this NATO summit, which really, for me, sh shows, one, how illegitimate Zelensky is, but also, two, how NATO, once again, is not a defensive organization. It is aimed explicitly at breaking up and, and weakening Russia. As U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, this this proxy war in Russia is all in Ukraine, excuse me, is all about weakening and containing Russia. Lloyd Austin said clearly the U.S. goal is to weaken Russia. And the New York Times published an article this week. I did a video about this and I have a report also at multipolarisa.com. In this New York Times article, multiple U.S. government officials confirm that the CIA is very active in Ukraine, that not only the CIA, but also special operations commandos from France, Britain, and Canada, as well as Lithuania. I mean, Lithuania is not a significant military power, but in short, the U.S., Britain, France, and Canada are militarily on the ground, active in Ukraine, training and directing Ukrainian forces, overseeing weapon shipments. This is not just a Western-backed war. This is a total proxy war in which Western countries literally have forces on the ground directing the Ukrainians. And according to this New York Times article, there are even Ukrainian forces using U.S. flags on their gear. So, I mean, for me, that's the perfect symbol of what interests these Ukrainian fighters are actually serving. They're certainly not serving the interest of Ukraine which is being dismembered on behalf of NATO and U.S. imperialism. They're certainly not defending the interests of other countries, you know, surrounding Ukraine, 
by endangering the region and threatening to expand this regional war even further on behalf of NATO and U.S. imperialism. So the CIA is on the ground directing these Ukrainian troops. The New York Times has admitted it. U.S. government officials have admitted it. It's undeniable. This is not a war simply between Russia and Ukraine. This is not a war between neighbors. This is a Western proxy war between, on one side, the U.S., Britain, the EU, NATO, and Ukraine, and the other side, Russia. And maybe you could throw in Belarus on the Russian side. And that New York Times article admitted that the U.S. Army has a command center in Germany, and that military command center brings together the militaries of more than 20 countries, and they're working together to help wage this war on Russia. So once again, this is a proxy war, not only involving the U.S., involving 20 countries' militaries on the side of Ukraine. So they're using Ukraine quite literally as cannon fodder. Ukrainians are dying, sacrificing their lives in order to help expand NATO. And by the way, while Finland and Sweden are joining we also saw that Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, stressed after this NATO summit, or at least during the NATO summit at a press conference, that Georgia is still going to join. Georgia, of course, is a former member of the Soviet Union. It is also bordering Russia. So yet another act of provocation, yet another threat. Well, he said, well, Stoltenberg boasted to Putin that that he's going to get more NATO on his borders. He also said that Georgia is still going to join this offensive military alliance, although he said there's no date. (laughs) So it seems that after sacrificing Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO and EU are also prepared to sacrifice Georgia. It's really senseless and it's really absurd. Anyone who truly actually cared about peace and human rights would want this war to end as soon as possible, would call for peace talks, immediate demilitarization, immediate end to fighting. But, of course, that's not why NATO exists. And, of course, I should also add the corporations in the military-industrial complex that are profiting from this. They want it to continue perpetually. And we've seen that the Biden administration announced another billion dollars of military assistance to Ukraine. Thus far, just since February... The U.S. government has pledged around $50 billion of assistance to Ukraine, in addition to billions more from other Western governments. So this is, as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, they're preparing for a long war. And I did an interview yesterday, which is June 29th, with Michael Hudson, a brilliant economist, I think one of the most important living economists, And we talked about the situation with inflation. We talked about the economic crisis. We talked about the warnings of a depression coming in the United States and in Western Europe and in other parts of the world. And we see very clearly that by continuing to impose more sanctions on Russia, by continuing to expand NATO right in Russia's borders, which also, of course, is um, coming at a time when they're already before this the escalation of this war in February, there already were 
high energy prices and inflation was a problem. I mean, this is all simultaneously fueling a massive economic crisis around the world. Michael Hudson predicts that not only is there a depression coming, but there is a long depression coming, talking about years, perhaps decades of economic depression in the West. So I hate to be, uh, you know, to end on a very pessimistic note there, but uh, that that is the current situation with this NATO summit. It is very provocative. It is yet another act of war. And it shows that the Western so-called democracies are not so interested in peace, although they claim to, to, to be interested in peace. So, well, with that said, I want to invite anyone listening, please go ahead and feel free to join the queue uh, here on Colin, and I will respond to any questions that people have. I know um, some people messaged me. I don't know if they're on here right now, if you want to ask any questions. And here I will start with uh, Cele, uh, nuestra compañera en Argentina. Go ahead. Dele. Cele. Hola. ¿Cómo está? Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, because I'm, I'm going to be quick because I'm in the bus. And, but no one is calling and I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, there's this thing that I, I've been thinking for a long time that I think with, I mean, with very refreshing self-criticism of many people in the U.S. to their government that we are somehow letting Europe off the hook. Uh, like, I mean, NATO is not just the U.S. And British, the Great Britain has colonies. I mean, it still has, not only Gibraltar. Uh, you know about Diego Rivera Island? Yeah, Malvinas. Ah, Malvinas. Okay. No, Malvinas, yes. Yeah. Malvinas, but there's an island that is called Diego Rivera that is, was occupied by the British. It was uh, is being rented by the US. It has a military base. And the whole population of the island was, tra was transported to Mauritius. And they wow. cannot come back. They cannot go back because they are renting the island. It's crazy. I mean, there's things like that. And of course, there is Malvinas, which is. Maybe if you look at a map, it just. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And <laughs> yes. And I think. Don't you think that somehow they are like. I don't know if you had time to read what, uh, what I sent you, but that is Evo Morales mm -hmm. uh, telling. Talking in, a, talking in the European Union. And he's very, it's very funny because he's, um, he's supposed to be paying uh, foreign debt and he starts uh, very ironically listing all the historic debt he, uh, the Europe had with Bolivia, all the gold they stole, all the silver. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and he starts like talking like in monetary fund. Language like I, how we've been using properly the assets and I know it's, it's, it's genius. And the the truth is like I don't think there is recognition in in Europe the same way at least not in not in Britain not in. Um, sell it. It cut out. I don't know if. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Sele, go ahead. 
the other thing is well, looks, you were talking about it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, your signal is cutting out. Ha- hello? Eh, se cortó. Ah, bueno. Ah, uh, yeah. Senle. Hey, uh, me escucha. Do you hear me? So, sí. Do you hear me? I do, yeah. Go ahead. You, it just cut out. Continue. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes, I, I'm not very, <laughs> I'm very far away from where I live. And maybe the, the telephone. Well, the thing is, uh, there was another thing on top of that, the... There is this talk about not only the the British are talking about it. There was this talk they have with the Biden, where Biden and uh, Trudeau, like together apparently, uh, warned about all the warned the leaders of uh, in the summit of the Americas. That not only the the presidents but the the other assistants. They had a lunch, a private lunch, and this is on the very mainstream oh no I lost lost her again um Sele uh, I don't know if you can hear me but it cut out again okay well I'm trying to figure out this because it's, it gets oh, better there we go Sele it cut out again okay uh, okay I'll call back I'll call back okay great so I'll just respond. Uh, I, I'll, I, will, I will come to your question in a second, Ian. But just while um, while she's figuring out her call signal thing, I do want to respond to a few things that she said. I agree that sometimes there is not un- enough criticism of Europe's role in this. Of course, you know, there's this discussion of agency and all this. And Europeans do have agency. And if they grew a spine, some of these European leaders could be more independent and not just act as poodles of the U.S. But unfortunately... They so frequently do act as poodles just following U.S. orders. And this is especially clear in the case of Britain. Britain, of course, had Brexit, and they claimed that they were going to challenge the EU bureaucrats and all of this. And immediately they just became the 51st U.S. state and have been obediently following the White House's orders. It's really embarrassing. And, of course, I didn't really expect much from the Tory-led Brexit. Now, if it had been... Jeremy Corbyn, it could have been a very different kind of Brexit, but that's why the British national security state sabotaged Jeremy Corbyn's campaign and the media went in on on an insane smear campaign against him and his own party, the neoliberal Labour Party, sabotaged him. So it's really sad to see Britain's complete subservience, but also it's also sad to see France and Germany kowtowing. Part of this is because in Germany's new coalition government, the Green Party, which is not green at all, it's anti-green, is dominated by warmongers who worship NATO and are very pro-imperialist. The Green Party was given an outsized role in foreign policy decision-making. Um, the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is just a complete war hawk. She is from the Green Party, but again, it, this is The Green Party in Germany is not a Green Party. It's a right-wing party that uses green rhetoric to advance imperialism and NATO. And Germany, at least not to really praise Merkel, but Angela Merkel 
always did try to maintain okay relations with Russia. They certainly were not friends, but she understood that Germany has its own interests that aren't the same as the U.S., and especially Germany is very heavily reliant on Russian energy, and that's because Russian energy is really cheap, and, and Russia was giving Germany very good deals on oil and gas, and of course, Merkel wanted to build this pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, which I should remind people was Germany's idea. It wasn't Russia's idea. Germany, under Merkel, wanted to build Nord Stream 2. And of course, one of the reasons that the U.S. pushed this conflict in Ukraine was about sabotaging Nord Stream 2. That was one of the fundamental goals that they accomplished. And now Germany is, is committing economic suicide by trying to disconnect itself basically in a few months from Russian energy after relying on this very cheap source of energy. And Germany is now relying on other energy sources, including U.S. liquefied natural gas, which is 10 times as expensive, which means that energy costs are going through the roof, not only for average Germans, but also for German industry. So, you know, Germany is a capitalist country. It has to compete in the capitalist world system. And German companies are less and less competitive now because they have to pay an insane amount of money for energy. So this is Europe committing economic suicide at the altar of U.S. imperialism. France is something similar, you know. Um, Emmanuel Macron prides himself on supposedly being, you know, independent and having this idea of strategic autonomy. And and he is cr the current leader of the EU. And he prided himself, especially before Russia sent its troops into Ukraine on this idea that France and Germany would recreate a, a European army. Well, we now see that France is once again also bowing down at the altar of U.S. imperialism. We see that Macron, he, he leaked this phone call that he had with Putin before the initiation of this Russian war in Ukraine in February. And this was a, a, a major diplomatic attack assault on Russia's foreign ministry. I mean, Putin is not going to have a phone call with Macron anymore if he thinks that Macron is going to record the phone call and then publish it without his consent. I mean, leaders aren't supposed to do that if they want to maintain good diplomatic relations. By doing that, Macron was very clearly sticking his finger in Putin's eye and saying, we don't respect you as a legitimate leader and we don't respect the legitimacy and sovereignty of your country. So, yeah, I mean, Europe has played a, a huge role in exacerbating this conflict and constantly pushing for NATO expansion. I mentioned Jen Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO. I mean, this guy, of course, he's also a U.S. poodle, but, you know, it's an, an example of the great Scandinavian social democracy, which has always been deeply embedded in imperialism and colonialism. So... I agree 100%. The fact that this NATO summit is being held in Madrid right now is another good example. Spain supposedly has a, in scare quotes, left-wing government, which is hilarious to hear anyone say that, led by the hilariously named Socialist Workers Party of Spain, which is neither socialist nor in defense of workers. And PSO, the PSOE, the which they say PSO, PSOE, is a total neoliberal party. It has been for many years now. It's a right-wing party. And they even had a, 
kind of power sharing agreement worked out with Podemos, which actually is a left wing party, which was basically totally defeated and has been rendered completely, you know, ineffectual. And they're now, they're hosting the world's leading warmongers and war criminals, this so-called left-wing government, a few days after this so-called left-wing government in Spain basically participated in a massacre of refugees and immigrants in Morocco. Spain has a, a colonial outpost city in North Africa that's really, I mean, it should be part of Morocco. Not that Morocco is much better, but it's part of North Africa, and they have this, this colonial outpost there that's called Melilla. And there was, there was a group of refugees and immigrants, African refugees and immigrants who tried to, to cross over into Melilla, the Spanish city in Morocco, and Moroccan security forces backed by Spanish security forces massacred them, killing dozens and wounding hundreds. There's these brutal, gruesome images of all these dead bodies and wounded people. Of course, most of them are very dark skinned. And it just really reflects this, the continuation of this colonial violence. And to me, it says so much that this massacre of immigrants and refugees backed by Spain and carried out by Moroccan forces with the back, the support of Spanish security forces. The fact that this massacre happened a few days before Spain rolled out the, the red carpet for the worst war criminals in the world, for me, says so much about Europe's role in this imperialist world system that is based on violence and subjugation of people in the global south. Of course, Spain, they were the original colonialists and the U.S. has has sur surpassed even their wildest dreams of domination. But yeah, I mean, that's why we, we always need to understand what NATO is. NATO was created in 1949 at the beginning of the first Cold War. It was created by the architects of the U.S. national security state and deep state, specifically Dean Acheson, who was Harry Truman's secretary of state and the, Harry Truman's main foreign policy advisor. And Dean Acheson was a an elite uh, corporate lawyer who was close friends with the other, you know, Wall Street gang who created the CIA, like the Dulles brothers. And Acheson was really the father, one of, along with Alan Dulles, of the deep state. And he understood that the U.S. empire that was being constructed after World War II, it needed to subordinate Europe to keep, to keep Europe tied to the U.S. economically and militarily through institutions like the, the, the Marshall Plan, which was a way of strengthening the U.S. military industrial complex by also keeping Europe economically dependent on the U.S. And then, of course, NATO. He was the main architect of NATO. So NATO has always been about creating this cross-Atlantic, this transatlantic imperialist alliance together after two world wars that were wars fought largely between European powers. So it's NATO is a way of keeping the European imperialists unified under the subordination of U.S. imperialism. So unifying Western imperialism in this massive U.S.-led imperialist bloc. And we see that so clearly. So anyway, I mean, I just think it's really important to talk about what NATO is, to talk about NATO, uh, talk about Europe's role in all of this, because I agree with Sele that, that Europe absolutely is a huge part of this. And this isn't even to mention the role of Europe in the war in Iraq, 
Of course, Britain was a huge part of the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, which is not only a U.S. war, it was a joint U.S.-NATO war in Afghanistan involving dozens of Western countries across Western Europe and also Australia. So these these countries absolutely are part and parcel of this imperialist world system. They have just as much blood blood on their hands. And, you know, I didn't even mention the NATO war in Libya in 2011, which was not only led by the U.S. military, but also Canada, also Britain, also France and Norway, the great so-called socialist, uh, not socialist, this, the, you know, this idea of democratic socialism, the idea that Norway is socialist is hilarious, but the, the social democracy in Norway, this imperialist social democracy, Norway's military, actually, Norway's air force, in, in terms of the percentage of its repute, re, excuse me, in terms of the percentage of its representation in NATO forces, Norway carried out the most bombings of Libya in terms of representation per capita, if you will, in the 2011 war to destroy NATO, uh, excuse me, 2011 NATO war to destroy Libya. So, yeah, uh, Europe, Europe is, is full of those, the same war criminals. Um, I will come back to you in a second, Sele, um, but I'm going to get Ian now, who's been patiently waiting. Ian Brown, go ahead. Hey, Ben. How's How you it going? Good. So I have sort of, um, I mean, a little bit of a left field question um, practiced by, I don't know, like a short kind of cathartic rant, I guess. But, um, man, like I've been watching, you know, the expansion of, of NATO and um, also this blockade on Lithuania. And it just, you know, it seems like and, you know, more U.S. troops and bases to Europe I mean basically, you know, turning Europe into this sort of de facto military colony. And like all these people, like, I just, I can't relate to however they must be thinking because it's completely insane. Like, I just like, I mean, you got to wonder, like, just, you know, what, what is their vision of the future? Like, does it involve like solving any domestic problems? Does it involve like peace? Does it involve, dealing with climate change or sort of an ongoing, you know, mutating pandemic. Like this is like really bleak and like just the fervor that so many of these like, you know, elected and I should point out unelected European officials, you know, have towards this, like, I mean, they're, they're kind of tap dancing on the abyss. Like they're like, this is a very dangerous period. And, you know, me as an individual, like I live in the United States and I feel like it's just the reality is so skewed that there's not really much I can contribute. Um, there's not very much I can do. And I, I keep thinking, you know, well, you're, you're a person who's actually managed to leave the Imperial core. Um, and I just keep thinking about like, is it better to just kind of like try to, do something like, you know, within the heart of the empire or go somewhere where people actually maybe share a similar consciousness and struggle and see if I can contribute something elsewhere and, and to people living, you know, in, in 
Latin America or Southeast Asia or Africa, it might sound a little crazy that, you know, living in the sort of the heart of power, you know, somebody would want to go to the, like the margins, you know, to, to make any kind of difference, but it's just, it's just so completely nuts. Like, I mean, like there's all this talk about, you know, shared European values and stuff. Like, I mean, I mean, what, what value is a world that's like, like split in half by these kind of iron curtains and just constant like saber rattling. And it's just, it's, it's so maddening. And, and maybe I'm talking like in a sort of a selfish way, you know, this is kind of my therapeutic way of trying to reconcile my place in all of this as a person and just deal with like how insane it is. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm destined to live with that being a sort of an imperial citizen. But on the other hand, you know, I, like I read about people in China that have like a very positive outlook about their future. Like they feel like they're moving towards something good. You know, it feels like they can make changes and, you know, being able to address problems and having a future, like having a future period, which the kind of current Western path is towards no future. Like it's, it's pretty freaky, but you know, if you're Chinese, you can feel pretty good to some degree about the direction your society is going in. Um, and it like, it, it reflects kind of psychologically, but you know, if you're actually aware of how the world works and what's going on in the West, like it's a it's a pretty big downer. Um, I'm just kind of actually wondering, like how you manage that and like, you know, what you think about uh, Americans or Europeans or, or gringos like moving to other places, um, you know, to maybe find a, a better fit in sort of the struggle against like capitalism and empire. Yeah, I mean, what's funny is more and more people are talking about this, and I think it makes perfect sense because everyone around the world can see the incredible, the rapid decline of the U.S. And I agree 100%. I mean, it's it's so shocking and striking. I can't say surprising to see the response of these Western governments. Well, there's this, first of all, this existential crisis of climate change getting worse by the year. Well, there's this horrific pandemic that killed a million people in the U.S. and many people in Europe. Well, there is this cascading economic crisis that continues to be exacerbated by the wars. Their solution, their only response is to double down, more war, more NATO expansion, more weapons, blockading Kaliningrad. You mentioned the situation with Lithuania. I mean, this is an extremely dangerous and provocative action. It would be like Russia blockading Alaska. I mean, Kaliningrad is part of Russia. It is recognized. No one in Western Europe challenges the fact that Kaliningrad is part of Russia. Now, it's located within continental Europe, but it's a part of the Russian Federation. And Lithuania basically blockading it is kind of like declaring war on Russia. And now they're, you know, they're having these, these cyber attacks that were clearly carried out by Russia. But I mean... If Lithuania is blockading a part of Russia, how do we, ex do we expect Russia not to respond? So now it's going to be part of the escalation ladder, right? Because Russia carries out cyber attacks in Lithuania for blockading Kaliningrad. 
How is Lithuania going to respond? How is NATO going to respond? Lithuania is part of NATO and the EU. This is extremely dangerous. And meanwhile, like you said, no discussion of climate change, no discussion of the pandemic. At this NATO summit, they should be, I mean, if they actually truly were a defensive alliance, which they're not, they would be talking about those things that would be about protecting their citizens. But they're, of course, not concerned with protecting their citizens. They're concerned about saving their their empires, their beloved empires. So I do think that it's a pretty rational response to be like, well, maybe the U.S. can't be saved. I mean, honestly, being brutally honest, I'm not so sure it can be. And I'm not even so sure that's a bad thing. Like, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, with these Supreme Court rulings are starting to think maybe this country should just be divided up. Uh, you know, people are talking about abolishing the Supreme Court. I'm cool with that. It's a very undemocratic institution. But also, I mean, maybe maybe Texas and New York and California and Idaho and Oklahoma and Washington shouldn't all be part of the same country. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of cascading crises. And I think it's completely reasonable to say maybe I should, you know, try living somewhere else. And I, and I think, you know, there's ways to do it responsi- responsibly, right? Like yeah. becoming part of another community and not just being like a, you know, a gentrifier. There's people who call it a form of gentrification. No, I don't think it is necessarily because there are a lot of immigrants and, you know, I don't like the term expat because, you know, expats always used for people from like a wealthy country going to a poorer country. But there are a lot of cases of so-called expats or immigrants who, be, you know, become part of the community and, become part of the political movement and all of that. And so I think that's totally reasonable. And I encourage people, honestly, at least to to spend more time abroad, because it also helps to expand your perspective. The thing is also in the U.S. is that even aside from political, uh, you know, political narcissism and like American exceptionalism, when you get out of the U.S. and especially when you get out of just like this bubble of the West of like the U.S. and Europe, and you do spend more time, you do actually help to develop a bigger, a broader perspective. And it really does help you see how narrow this Western understanding is of the world. And as an example of this, I mean, I just saw this poll that was conducted by Pew, which is like one of the main polling firms. And they polled 18 countries about their feelings on Russia. And then they concluded that that, that the world is very very critical of Russia, very much against Russia. But when they say the world, they mean the U.S., Canada, Australia, Western Europe, and then they threw in Singapore and Malaysia just to have, and Japan and South Korea, just to have a few non-white majority countries. But their their idea of the world or so-called international community is quite literally just the West and its allies. They left out the biggest countries in the world, China, India, Brazil, Bangladesh, Pakistan. So it, it really it's really a good idea, I think, to spend some time abroad now permanently. I mean, that's up to you. It's your personal decision. And I should say, you know, that we don't want everyone with good progressive politics to leave the U.S. because then it just becomes more and more of a fascist hellhole. But look. Yeah. Look, what I often tell people is at the same time, we all only have one life. It's it's a cliche YOLO, right? You only live once. But if you personally feel like there's not much that you can contribute as things get worse and worse, there's nothing wrong with 
going somewhere else. I did it. A lot of people are doing it. I have zero plans in the future of ever returning to live in the U.S. And I think, you know, that if you do it in a way where you, you know, become part of like a new community and contribute, then that's that's a good thing. And I got to say another quick note, which is on a more slightly more superficial note, but it's true. A lot of countries, especially in the global south, encourage that because they get more revenue when people who make more money come and they spend that money into the local economy. So especially if you can still get paid in dollars and do like a remote job so you're not taking a job from someone in the country you move to, that's good for them because you're actually helping to contribute more to their economy and to their tax revenue. And certainly in a lot of countries in the global south, they actually... They have incentives. They want people who come from wealthier countries to move. So those are all things to think about. That's cool. That's a, a good answer. Like, um, yeah, I mean, it, I think on an individual level, we're all kind of looking for a, a way out of the madness. And I just one thing I, I thought of, like, you know, every moment when it seems like the the kind of like conflict and Ukraine and Europe seems to wane and it's like, all right, okay, maybe this, this whole thing isn't worth the cost. The pendulum always swings back. And it tells me that there are people like in sort of the Western power structure that are like, we're going to have some kind of war or some kind of like bifurcation of the world. Like, and like, and if you have to pry it out of my cold dead hands, (laughs) like there are people, they're just so crazy that they refuse to let go of just completely insane outcomes. And um, yeah, I, I've been thinking about, I've actually traveled the world a good bit and that's one of the things that, that opened my eyes a lot. And um, even Europe, it feel, felt like, you know, at least their lifestyle is a bit more humane, but, but now I've kind of lost hope for them as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're a pretty good example. Like personally, I don't know anybody else who's who's moved to Nicaragua. Um, I definitely have to brush up on my my Spanish. But uh, yeah, well, another thing I would say is people to people from the U.S. who want to move, do not be one of those people who moves and refuses to learn the local language. I'm not saying you would do that, but like, like it's insulting, though. Yeah, yeah, that's that's another reason that you know so-called expats that is immigrants from the U S often have really bad reputations is because they do keep that kind of very narcissistic imperialist mentality that says, well, I speak English. Everyone should speak English. No. Uh, if you, if you do it, definitely learn the local language. And that's, that's of course how you also become part of the community. Excellent. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more actually. Just I've been to Bali and, um, it seemed like sort of the expat community there or, or the digital nomad community there, there was almost this kind of almost like co- colonial relationship there. Yeah. Like, you know, between the actual culture of people living and working all the time and this sort of like class of like expats and stuff. And I think, you know, anybody that travels should really think about that actually like for real, like do your best to integrate into the culture, you know, um, yeah. Anyways, I'm rambling on, uh, but uh, thanks a lot. Really good answers, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah. Th- great comments. It's, it's why I always like to have these discussions here because we always have very cool, dis- very cool conversations. And yeah, I mean, I agree that they're often, especially in Southeast Asia, they're, 
you know, like these uh, white expats, white immigrants who go, there often is that very kind of toxic, exploitative relationship. So that's, that's an example of how not to do it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Great. Well, thanks. Please feel free to join these calls in the future. All right. Thanks um, a lot, Ben. All right. I'm going to go back to Sele. Bueno, adelante. Hi. How's it going? Okay. Can you hear me now? I can. Yeah. Great. Okay. I stopped. I got up to us. Yeah, I'm so sad to hear about the Green Party in Germany. I didn't know about that. It's horrible and, well, nothing. Another, uh, another one that goes. And the, the thing with Podemos, there was also some, like, they kept shooting themselves off the foot or, I mean, there's some parties that end up imploding, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it seems, uh, for instance, I mean, things are, as the other caller said, so, so, so bad now. And they, they sometimes put their interest in, but what, well, you know, human rights. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, no, what I was telling you before was that, uh, that there was this talk and they told, uh, that there, there was this big risk. Uh, for World War Three, and that they had a lot of uh, armament, uh, planes and stuff uh, around China because the war was supposed to be with China. And listen to this because this, this, is, this is hilarious. That that was a reason that uh, they they couldn't be more helpful with Latin America. That they. They would like to be more supportive, but they can only afford that they could only afford until now to to be just um, spreading democracy and not economically supportive because of this. And it, I mean, of course, not not in these words, but uh, it goes through those who said it. And I don't know if they're just making. I don't know what they're doing. The British, as you said, also said that there was this imminent World War Three, and why, why, why are they saying all this stuff? Well, I truly think that they. I'm, Celia, uh, I'm just going to. Why uh, silenciar tu audio? Porque hay mucho audio en el phone. Yes. So. I truly think that a lot of these people in Europe, they think this is the opportunity to defeat Russia. And they think that Russia has been this, this thorn in their side ever since at least Yeltsin, the alcoholic Western puppet, was ousted. And they see this as the opportunity to finally overthrow the Russian government. And their, their argument, they truly think that right now people are going to suffer in the short term. But in the long term, the West will be stronger because Russia will be defeated. Russia will be, the Russian government will be overthrown. That's what Biden said in his speech in Poland. And that's why, you know, Ian was saying that the previous caller was saying that in the U.S., there are so many people who, especially these war hawks in Washington from both the Democratic and Republican parties, who are just pushing for escalation, escalation, escalation. 
they see this as the final battle, like kind of like a crusade. This really is kind of like the new crusade, the new crusade. And Russia is the big, bad, bad enemy. And they see this as the opportunity. And if they lose in Ukraine, they, they are afraid that they will never have another opportunity to defeat Russia. So I'll add you again, Sally. That's, that's what I think. Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, actually, talking about <laughs> not, not something personal with the British, but I, I saw at the beginning of the war, I sometimes, uh, there was these parties with Boris Johnson and it was very mm -hmm. funny in the, the talks on the parliament. And, uh, and well, I, I ended up seeing the first one uh, when they started talking about the war and there was two uh, two, I don't know, MPs, I think they're MPs, yes, MPs yeah, that, yes, MPs that, uh, two, only two, that were not uh, inciting for more violence, that were saying, well, maybe we should negotiate, and you know how they do it with the feeds and the, yeah, it was like overwhelmingly, <laughs> like they were saying the most ridiculous thing, and this was only one day into the war. So they, yes, as I say, they, they don't care. I don't know. I'm not sure. And they, I'm, I'm provoking China. This, this <laughs> is, I mean, it's ridiculous. And that's what scares me a lot about Malvinas. That really frightens me because uh, <laughs> I always said that, that one day we, we were going to realize that they are speaking English in the Patagonia uh, because uh, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of things I'm not going to bore everybody with this, but the of private owners uh, doing like very very shady things, the, to buy land where they are not supposed to. There's one that surrounded a lake and doesn't allow people into the lake, and he he's British and part of the and he's partnered with the BlackRock, the oh, wow. investment company. No, yes, and the thing with Malvinas is. Is that I, I understand that the people don't want to be Argentinians. I completely understand. I don't think anyone cares. I think they can be British in in the islands. They can, I don't know, have dual nationality. They can, I don't know, ask for the Italian like many people do here. But the thing is that they have so many weapons there. Mm -hmm. They have a shield, an, an missile shield, anti-missile shield. Uh, to against who? Just you know the map. <laughs> who who are they? I mean, we don't have one missile. There is no one missile, and I mean, there's. We are not really this very, I mean, very warmonger country, and we have nothing. We had one submarine, and it, 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 it we lost it. And we don't have ships. We don't have anything. So. What is the aim of arming themselves? Okay, it's a base. It has access to Antarctica. It's very well located. But to me, there's something else. And the thing with Patagonia is we, we have the second reserve of shale gas. There, the, there is um, oil. And, and lithium, I believe, right? Lithium, yeah, but lithium is on the north. The, in the frontier, Chile... Argentina and Bolivia, Bolivia having the, the most part of it, mm -hmm. uh, has the 80% of the whole world reserves of lithium 
in there. And, but that's in the Atacama Desert, in, it's in the frontier with Bolivia, it's in the north. And well, and then there's the, the south part of the, I mean, we produce, I don't know if I told you, uh, food for 400 million people. We sell a lot Especially to China. No, no, especially green. That's what makes me, that's, that's another weird thing. Because there's no name, like, oh, everybody needs grain. And we produce more than anything grain. And, of course, beef. But beef is, you know, the cows here go around, like, they're not feedlots and stuff like that. Uh, and it's supposed to be very good beef. So, and people here eat a lot. But we have 47 million and we produce soy, we produce corn, we produce um, the other thing, the wheat. So all the things that are scarce now, so it's, I don't know, <laughs> it's worrying, it's worrying. And, and I, I just cannot finish to connect the dots of all the things that... Like when I told you about what you explained to me about the difference with the Koch brothers and and Davos, yeah. And the, the other day I was listening to to your uh, your uh, interview with the the doctor Hudson. You know, how's his name? Michael Hudson. Mm -hmm. Yes, Hudson. And. He, he was saying, well, he was, if it was really, really, it was really depressing. I mean, his pride, and it's, it's very, very sad. I mean, and here is, there's so much people on the streets, and it's, it's, it's incredible that they think things are going to get worse, and they're not doing anything about it. And he, it was very funny because all the things that the U.S. is doing, I mean, of course we've done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we tried it. We tried everything, and it, Macri did that, uh, and it's exactly, exactly what they're saying. And it did not work at all. We're expecting three-digit inflation this year. So wow. it's tried. It has no. It doesn't work at all. And um, the countries, because we know. I mean, it's like we are all, we are all football coaches and economists. Um, especially a uh, specialist on inflation <laughs> and uh, we there's so many things that been tried all over the world that really worked and that is not one of it <laughs> not one of them I mean there's a lot more uh, comprehensive things that that did in other countries but it, it makes no sense it's like they're it's like I said they are shooting themselves on the food they they are obvi obviously they have other interests not, not that one. And what I didn't understand that I wanted to ask you is, he, I think he was, he said, he talked about Latin America, and he was saying this very horrible thing, but horrible, not, not because he said it, but because it happens, if it happens, it's horrible, that uh, it was actually this division that one, one power was saying, come back with us and the IMF and the BRICS were, you know, remember that he talked about that and he said that at a point what he predicts is that there will be uh, I mean there will be so much hunger or something like that that it will that we will going to need to buy oil and food and 
and we have to be forced to. But that's a thing. I mean, if, if Latin America gets together, we don't need. Exactly. <laughs> we don't need that. We have all of that. We exactly. Have food for everything needed. Everything. Everything, even chocolate, that we don't have chocolate, and it's very important. Colombia has it. Uh, it's, it's, that's, that's, I don't know why. I mean, it's like the, there is this part that the, nobody's talking about, like they assume that that can't happen. But I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm just going to mute you again because of the background perfect, noise. Perfect, perfect, yeah. I mean, that's also why the U.S. has been so desperate to prevent regional integration, attacking organizations like the CELAC, like the ALBA, like UNASUR. So that's why I think it's so important to strengthen those organizations. That's why it's so important for Lula to win the election this October in Brazil. That's also why it's important for Argentina to join the BRICS. There's been discussion and, you know, we've we... I know that you agree with me, uh, Sele, that Fernandez has not been a very good president, but he did participate in the recent BRIC summit, and Argentina is allegedly going, is reportedly going to become part of the BRICS, and they might recall it the BRICSA, and that's going to be huge if if they can accomplish that, because not only does Latin America have all the resources and commodities that it needs, but especially if it can further integrate with China and, and also to a lesser extent, Russia. I mean, Russia's energy sources are important, but Latin America has plenty of oil, not only in Venezuela, but also Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Mexico. But especially with China, if they can further integrate the economy with China, it's, it that could be a solution. And we see that with the trip that, that Fernandez took this February to both China and Russia We'll see how it goes. Of course, the U.S. is not going to allow that. And what what scares me most is that there is going to be this crisis that continues. We already see this crisis in the U.S. There's a massive political crisis. There's now an economic crisis. And what concerns me is that in these moments of crisis, the U.S. often tries to secure its control over Latin America because that's the Monroe Doctrine, this colonialist mentality and and U.S. politicians say, well, we're, we've been losing control over West Asia. We were defeated in Iraq, defeated in Afghanistan. Now we need to re reinforce our control over Latin America. We saw Biden refer to Latin America as the U.S. front yard. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's difficult. And, and now, ironically, you know, uh, unfortunately, you all in Argentina have have known for years now what it's like suffering with high levels of inflation. And I know that Argentina is now getting hit even harder by the inflation crisis. But the irony is that that inflation crisis that you all have been suffering for a long time is now what the entire world is suffering. So I think there's definitely lessons that people can also learn from the situation in Argentina. And I just hope that someone like uh, Millet doesn't, I hope that he's not able to win and sabotage those attempts at regional integration that are so necessary, like in, in CELAC and UNASUR. But um, thank you, Sele. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I, I'm just going to take the last two questions here, and then I have to run because we're already at an hour. So briefly, I'll, I'm going to take questions from Owen and, and Omet here, and then I'll conclude. So this is Owen Cooper. Go ahead. 
Hey, Ben, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. And it was also good to see you on Bad Faith earlier this week as well. Yeah, thanks. That was a great conversation. Yeah, uh, Breed's always able to get that out of people. Uh, My question today was about uh, miseducation by way of mainstream media manipulation. Mm -hmm. And my question today is, uh, has mainstream media consumption become a ritualistic addiction like lottery scratch-offs or (laughs) sweepstakes? And if your answer is yes, how can we detox these habits from our family and community members when for the past 50 years they've become dependent on the constant lies that they've been fed by the 24-hour news cycle? This is a great question, and I like the way you framed it, you know, comparing it to like a a vice, like a horrible addiction. I mean, I, I don't disagree, but at the same time, to be a little fair, you don't really, people don't need lottery tickets or alcohol to survive, but you kind of do need the news, maybe not to survive, but to function in your society, to know what's going on, to be informed. So I, I do think that the difference is that unlike lottery tickets, media consumption is necessary. But the downside, of course, is that the mainstream media, as you said, is just insane propaganda. And so people are, in fact, being misinformed. So what is the solution? I mean, the solution, of course, is other alternative media outlets. And one of the very few good things about the internet, of course, there's a lot of bad things. The internet is very much a double-edged sword. But one of the good things is that there has been a slight democratization of media access so people can get more information from alternative and independent outlets, and we should encourage that. But at the same time, although TV viewership in general is down around the world and people instead more and more are getting their news from social media and YouTube and stuff, we also see that these social media platforms are censoring independent and alternative media outlets to try to maintain that chokehold the, that the mainstream outlets have. So what, what can people do? They can you know, uh, encourage and support independent and alternative media, share it with their friends and family and loved ones, and, you know, try to help break that chokehold that the mainstream outlets have. But also at the same time, I think we need to start diversifying social media use. We need to use other platforms that are not all dominated by these big U.S. Silicon Valley monopolies. That's much easier said than done. It's very hard. But the issue is that, you know, breaking out of like TV and moving to the Internet, that does help weaken things like CNN and Fox and MSNBC. But if everyone gets their news from Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and those companies are dominated by Silicon Valley, that doesn't really solve the problem. So it's a really it's a really difficult problem. And unfortunately, it's not something that can really be solved by individuals, it's it has to be solved by breaking up these big Silicon Valley corporations. So at the end of the day, the, the problem is also a manifestation of a bigger economic problem, which is that these big monopolies, not just in Silicon Valley, but in general, these big corporate corporations that control our lives should be broken up. But very, very good question, Owen. Um, thanks for joining the call. Anything else? Before of course. I to Owen? Oh, no, I was just going to thank you for your time. And also your answer as well. And have a nice rest of your day. You too, Owen. Thanks a lot. Great question. And please join in the future.
So I'm going to conclude here with a question from Umit. Go ahead. Hi, Ben. Hey, Am how's it going? Hey, yeah, hey, yeah, hey. I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay, I'm doing well. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, you said that. <laughs> Just answered that question. Uh, yeah, well, uh, kudos to Owen. Uh, he asked me the same question yesterday, so uh, it's, uh, it's a very good uh, question that he asked uh, as well. Um, I would point uh, the people out to when it comes to um, um, uh, NATO at this moment. They had a summit yesterday or last week, uh, last weekend, I think. It's going on right now, yeah. It's still going on. It's still going on. Okay, okay. Um, uh, I want to to point the people out to to the role of Turkey at this moment. I mean, Turkey has a very very interesting role when it comes to uh, the membership of NATO, and I I just uh, posted a, um, uh, a a link to an article written by Pepe Escobar. I know that you know him. You've talked to him a couple, uh, I think, two years ago, together with Max. Yeah, I've interviewed him a few times. He's, he's, yeah. His analysis is very good. Yeah, he's, he's great. He's great. Um, because um, uh, it's not just... Uh, uh, just um, well, Turkey right now has uh, had... And an, an, how do you say that? Um, uh, yeah, their demands have been met. And uh, Turkey is part of a, of a, a, a Turkic coalition... And that uh, expands to uh, countries like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkmenistan, um, and a couple of other countries, uh, most of the stands in Central Asia. And um, oh, they would like uh, to have more influence. And a couple of uh, countries within these, uh, this uh, uh, coalition are also part of a, a NATO um, uh, project. I think it was NATO Coalition for Peace, if I read the article well. So, uh, yeah, it, if, if you look at it in a, in a broader uh, uh, perspective, uh, it's, um, yeah, to counteract to the economic um, um, uh, ambitions uh, made by, especially China in this case, with, with their BRI, and, uh, well, Russia as well, uh, I think. When it comes to a broader um, uh, Eurasian uh, project, so yeah, I would like to know if you know about this and what are your thoughts about this. Yeah, well, I actually I began the episode today talking about Turkey and its agreement that it made with Sweden and Finland, and it really mm -hmm. shows that you know Erdogan prides himself on pretending like he's got a very you know independent foreign policy, but. Often when it comes down to U.S. pressure, he almost always buckles. He almost always gives in. And this is an example of, you know, he did get Sweden and Finland to agree to to extradite some Kurdish activists who were, you know, accused of being militants linked to the PKK. And in return, he's helping NATO expand onto Russia's borders, which is yeah. ironic because, you know, Turkey has claimed that it's trying to be this mediating force between Russia and the West. Turkey did actually help co-sponsor some peace talks that were going on between Ukraine and Russia. But of course, you know, it, Turkey always does this double game where on one side it buys Russian military equipment and the Russian S-400 missile defense system and claims to support Russia's diplomatic policies of, you know, helping build this like Eurasian axis. But then Turkey also as a member of NATO 
Turkey shoots down Russian planes in Syria. Turkey is occupying northern parts of Syria against the central government in Syria and Damascus, which is an ally of Russia. So it's a complicated game that Erdogan's playing. And yeah, I mean, also in terms of this larger kind of Turkic alliance that Erdogan's trying to build, we also saw that with the coup attempt, the color revolution attempt in Kazakhstan at the beginning of the year, where there were allegations that I think are pretty well justified. There is a lot of evidence suggesting that Turkey sent some of these forces from Syria that were fighting some of these Salafi forces into Kazakhstan Mm -hmm. to try to help overthrow the government. And Kazakhstan, although it is part of this, um, although you mentioned that there is this kind of Turkic alliance that Turkey is the de facto leader of, uh, Kazakhstan and other countries in Central Asia are also part of the the um, the CTSO, the CSTO, the um, yeah. Russia-led security bloc, which is compared to like a Russian-led NATO, although the difference is that it's not offensive, like NATO is an offensive alliance. This is a security alliance. And then, of course, in response to this, this coup attempt in Kazakhstan, the CSTO voted to send troops in, not only Russian troops, but there are also troops from other CSTO members, including... Um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which, of course, they're, I mean, enemies, but they're also part of this same security bloc. So it's a complicated game again. And yeah. and I haven't read Pepe's latest article on this. But, well, I yeah. mean, the fact that the fact that Turkey is willing to allow NATO to add Finland right and onto Russia's borders and then Jen Stoltenberg after announcing the Swedish, the Swedish, Finnish and Turkish agreement he boasted that Putin is going to get more NATO on his borders. I mean, it really shows that at the end of the day, even if Turkey is trying to improve its relations with Russia and talking about joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and all of this, I mean, how can people trust it when it constantly also helps the West and NATO? I mean, I, don't, I really don't understand what Erdogan's plan is at the end of the day because he's constantly playing all of his allies against each other, so no one really trusts him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it comes down to uh, reviving. Uh, that's that's my thought, of course. Uh, reviving the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. Empire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that was my question, and uh, thank you, Benjamin. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Umut. That was a great question. And Turkey's always a complicated player in this. I mean, you know, yeah. what's interesting is Turkey has been playing a role now in the non-aligned movement, which is funny because it's a member of. NATO, but it's involved in the non-aligned movement. So yeah. it's it's interesting to see. I mean, I agree that Erdogan ultimately does want to restore the Ottoman Empire. We see this especially in northern Syria, where he's been taking over areas like, um, you know, uh, Tel Aviv and Arbil, and and also taking mm-hmm. over um, basically, uh, you know, this massive chunk of Syria. That is basically yeah. just like Al Qaeda Central, occupied by HTS Idlib. So we'll see yeah. how that goes, and yeah. into Iraq as well. But thank you, great, yeah. great question. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. So I do really have to wrap up soon, but I'll really briefly I'll take a que- this question here from from uh, Matan before I conclude. Hi Ben, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing? Cool. I'm doing well. I joined just a few minutes ago because I was working, so I hope this question was not asked, and if it was, then I'm sorry. Um, I actually wanted to ask 
Um, what is your take on gun control? Because since the uh, the latest massacre in Uvalde, I, I've heard um, some voices from the left, like uh, Jimmy Dore and Glenn Greenwald, and some some of their takes kind of surprised me. Uh, I'm I'm not calling from like I'm not American. I'm I'm living in Berlin. I'm coming from Israel actually. Um, yeah, just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, this is a very complicated question. First of all, I, I, I'm not so sure I would call Glenn Greenwald someone on the left at this point. Uh, I mean, but uh, anyway, but I, I haven't seen what they said. But honestly, I do think that the issue of gun control is very complicated in the U.S. Because although I say this as someone who I don't like guns, I think they're very dangerous and bad and unhealthy for society. But I also think that the U.S. is an extremely violent society and especially far-right forces are very active and are very well armed. So I think that in general, calling for disarming people, especially people on the left, especially people of color, especially women, I think is a, honestly not a very good idea. I think it's a bad idea. Uh, actually, someone earlier mentioned in this call that I did an interview uh, this week on Bad Faith, the podcast with Brianna Joy Gray, and we were joined by Jammu Baraka. And Ajamu, who's a leader of the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, he also talked about this. Brianna asked both of us about it, and we both agreed. And, and he, I mean, he speaks with much more authority as a, as a black leftist organizer. And he was like, look, I, I tell people, especially, this is what he was saying, tell people in the black community, do not, uh, do not allow these far-right white supremacists to take guns away. Uh, so... I also agree as a white guy. I mean, look, the U.S. is extremely dangerous and violent, especially if you're in like the South and there are like a lot of these white supremacist groups. It's not new, of course. You know, the KKK has this long history of terrorizing people. And even if you look at the civil rights movement, the MLK is very misunderstood. Martin Luther King Jr. owned guns. He owned multiple guns. And there's actually a book about this. And Martin Luther King agreed to nonviolence as a tactic, but also he was known for having not only one and not only multiple, but having a lot of guns in his house because he was constantly threatened. His house was, of course, firebombed by white supremacists. So I think gun control is a very complicated issue in the U.S. Now, I think it's insane. I think it's crazy that 18-year-olds can buy assault rifles. They can buy military-grade weapons that are created simply to destroy human lives and wage war. That's, that's a whole different level. Of course, I'm not saying that like, you know, teenagers should be able to buy assault rifles, but I also think that, you know, this liberal fetishization of, of illegalizing guns and gun control. It's, I mean, it's, it's a bad idea in this country that is extremely unstable. I frankly, think there's going to be more and more political violence in the U.S. in the years to come. We see more and more a Republican Party that is basically openly fascist. We see that a huge section of the Republican Party refuses to recognize the results of elections they lose. We also see a Democratic Party that basically refuses to recognize election results by claiming that if you win, you're a Russian puppet. But the difference is that a lot of these Republicans are very well armed. And I have lived in the South And for many years, I, I know the U.S. South pretty well. I lived in Texas and Alabama, Mississippi and Kentucky. And there are a lot of guns and there are not people are not going to give up those guns. 
And even if there's some kind of federal gun control, local state governments are just going to ignore the federal gun laws that we already see that happening. So it's a complicated issue and I wish there was a simple solution, but the reality is even if gun control was passed at a federal level and even if local state governments run by Republicans agreed by the federal law, which is very unlikely, then the reality is that there are still are 400 million guns in the US. There are more guns than people. So even if tonight, somehow, magically, there was federal gun legislation restricting gun ownership laws and all of that. I mean, the black market is already huge enough. There's more guns than people. So it's just one of those problems that I really don't think there's a simple solution to. I think that there are certain forms of laws like restricting the possibility to buy heavy military-grade weapons that I think are very sensible, obviously. But the idea that just like restricting gun ownership or banning guns or whatever can solve this is it's way more complicated than that, considering not only, you know, the issue of these mass shootings, but the fact that some of these mass shootings are carried out by Nazis like we saw in in Buffalo, New York. So the mass shooting of this teenager in Texas, it's horrible. It's an example of. I think an example of this crazy policy of allowing 18 year olds to buy assault rifles. But the shooting in Buffalo a few days before New York was carried out by an avowed neo-Nazi white supremacist. Those terrorists, they're going to get weapons however they can. Right. So in a situation like that, where those kinds of politically motivated mass shootings are increasingly common. I, I, you can, I can't tell people, especially black people, Latinos and women, that they can't get guns. I tell people, look, if I lived in the South in particular in the U.S., I would have a gun, but legally, of course. And I think that's tragic. I think it's bad. It's extremely unhealthy for society, but that's, that's how U.S. society is. Right. Uh, that was a very interesting take, and uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I wish I wish I had a more optimistic answer, but that's... no, yeah, I, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's you know, I'm coming from uh, I'm coming from Israel and I live in Berlin, and here it's just it's just like not a thing, you know. It's not like guns are not a thing. So for me, that's a a very complex question also to think about because I don't, yeah, never experienced even what it means to live in a country like the U.S. where you know everybody might have a gun. In their trousers so uh yeah i just yeah the only the only argument that i don't think i agree with is that we need to have guns in order to resist the government like you know if that if that was true then they wouldn't have let people have guns they know it's not going to be aimed <laughs> against yeah, and, them and you're never going to outgun the government the idea exactly of out, outgunning the u.s government is an insane idea that's not yeah no but i'm saying that especially in the south of the U.S. The thing is, more and more, this, is, this has been a problem for decades, of course, going back to Jim Crow, but more and more, a lot of local governments are run by people who, one, do not recognize the legitimacy of the federal government, and two, are willing to collaborate with a lot of these gangs and white supremacist groups. This is especially true in like the deep south, Alabama, Mississippi, northern Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, And 
you might have like a Republican far right local official who is willing to allow like these white supremacists and KKK forces to just terrorize people. So what, what do people do? I mean, they could move obviously, but a lot of people are poor and don't have money to move. A lot of people get guns and it's just for basic self-defense and it makes sense. And you think, so, um, is there any, like, I, I, yeah, it sounds appealing to me. Is there any evidence that this actually helps? Like, you know what I mean? Like, does it, like, guns actually help people of color and minorities to defend themselves against neo-Nazis or just the balance of power you think is, you know, minimizing the attacks, let's say? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there have been studies done. I'm not sure. But I say this as someone like, this is not an issue that I study very closely, but I've done research on it and listened to what people say. And I have to say, like, a lot of, especially black leftist organizations, especially in the South, they are very supportive of gun ownership. But again, done in a very responsible way because of all the threats they face. And like I said, it's a very complicated issue. I wish, frankly, as you know, I live in Latin America and depending on where you are, there aren't that many guns. I mean, in some places there are, but like where I am, there's not that many guns. And I think people definitely feel much safer, but the U.S. is, it's just a very different case and it's really awful. So yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had a better answer. I'm not sure, but there are definitely people who have studied this better than I have and you know, the, the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, which is like this Black Panther inspired group of, you know, uh, mostly black folks in the South. They are, you know, they're socialists, their politics are great, and they're, they're advocates for people of color just getting basic guns to defend themselves, hoping that they never have to use them. And I, I'm certainly not one of those people that's like, the solution to mass shootings is is having more guns and arming teachers. I mean, that's insane, especially in schools. It's insane. But like I said, I mean, uh, just saying ban guns is not a solution either, considering there's 400 million guns in the U.S. So I have frankly have no idea how to deal with this massive problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was that was a very good take. Thank you so much. And uh, love your work. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. One. Thanks. I appreciate it. And I do want to apologize to Brady here. I, I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I want to take your question, but I really have to run because I have another interview coming up and it's already over an hour. So please um, feel free to join. I do two of these calls a week. So please feel free to join. I'm sorry I couldn't take your question, but I said two questions ago that it was the last question. So I can't just keep doing more. I got to run. Um, but I really appreciate everyone who joined this conversation. It's always fun. It's always a good uh, discussion. And I do two of these a week, so I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.